ships. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fear Response Podcast. Where horror movies and mental health meet. I'm Jenna, and I'm a registered nurse with a specialization in mental health and addictions. And I'm John. I'm a trained therapist, and I now oversee a team of youth therapists. Uh, And we're very pleased to introduce um, our guest today, Mike Munzer, from the Evolution of Horror podcast. Hi, Mike. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Our pleasure. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. Absolutely. And we're here to talk about Jenna's favorite movie. Is that right? Yes. Yep. This is my favorite movie. Wow. I mean, that being said, I mean, there really is like, it's true that there's a tier of movies that are your favorite. It's hard to ever pick. Like a best friend. Yes. It's hard to pick just one. (laughs) But I think that it's fair to say that this is my my favorite. And um, my husband really wanted me to mention, he wanted me to be sure to mention this on the podcast that because it's my favorite movie he got me a um, megalodon Uh. (laughs) tooth fossil for one of like our first birthdays that we were together so Mm. i've got a big fat shark tooth uh up in my house i remember we all knew what it was yes and he he had got he told our whole family about this megalodon tooth he'd got you and then as he was bringing it to you at christmas or whatever he like dropped it and shot it across the room yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we were terrified, but it survived the trip anyway. Yeah. Amazing. My mom, she was like clutching her pearls. She was like, no, watching it fall. Like, meanwhile, it's a fossil, so it's literally a rock. So you can't really damage it. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we're really excited to get into this movie. I mean, there's a lot to be said about it, its impact and and the, the legacy that it has. Um you know, it's considered to be one of the first, if not the first, modern blockbuster films. Mm. And as I understand it, it kind of helped to set the blueprint for releasing like a big budget film kind of in the summertime. Mm. That's kind of what the summer blockbuster means. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, that's that's right. From what I am aware of, it kind of kicked off that whole tradition, didn't it? I mean, I think a couple of years earlier... In 1973, you had The Exorcist, too, Mm. which was kind of considered an early example of a blockbuster. But I think that got a Christmas release, right? Mm. That was like a winter movie. Whereas this was, yeah, this kind of really, like you said, it set the template for the summer blockbuster that's going to like pack out theatres, different age groups. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask your opinion about this, too. Like, there are certain films and shows that just kind of baffle me in terms of how they kind of get into the zeitgeist in the way that they do. So like Mm. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Jaws, The Exorcist, as you just said, Silence of the Lambs, which swept the Oscars. It's like, if you were to give a synopsis to people of Silence of the Lambs, two active serial killers, one who eats people, one who makes skin suits and things like this, or of Jaws, you know, Killer Shark, I don't think that many people would predict it would capture kind of the public attention the way it did. And and so I was just kind of wondering your opinions on how movies like Jaws are able to do that sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's something in the air, isn't there, with mm. certain movies where yeah. and I, I think word of mouth um, is definitely something and the kind of hype around it. Horror has always been 
one of the most lucrative genres of, of film, right? I mean, traditionally, mm. it's kind of low budget and it always, mm-hmm. no matter what, it packs out audiences, it packs out theatres. Horror also seems to be one of the few genres that doesn't really necessarily have to rely on film stars to make money. True. Mm-hmm. Like, if there's a scary movie out, people are going to go see it regardless, right? So I think that's all really interesting. But I think you have these kind of, these these particular horror movies, like the ones you just mentioned there, Jaws, Silence of the Lambs, they kind of cross over into this territory where a lot of people would argue they're not horror films, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course they are, but <laughs> yeah. they 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 have this kind of slightly more mainstream appeal as well. And I think all audiences, even ones that don't like to call themselves horror fans, right. love to go to the theatre and be scared with their friends, right? So I think these these big tentpole blockbuster horror movies that scare us but give us a thrill those movies particularly really really make lots of money i think they're the ones that people want to flock to go and see and jaws and the exorcist are perfect examples of that in the 70s like you say silence Hmm. of the lambs and then these other kind of horror movies that kind of gained infamy like the blair witch project you know these sorts of films that's true people tell each other about you hear about through friends and you want to experience it you want to experience what everyone else experienced in the theater you know so i think yeah horror really has that power definitely Mm -hmm. yeah and it just i think you're right too um about the horror aspect and then about there just being something in the air that like kind of you can't necessarily mistake the movie for the wave but sometimes the movie rides the wave that kind of Mm. thing that they just hit at the right time and I I think so when I was using Game of Thrones as an example too super high fantasy dragons magic and then like everybody was watching it Mm -hmm. right yeah so not the kind of thing where you're like oh what kind of movies do you like and it's like oh I like you know medieval fantasy movies and people yeah. might turn their nose up about something like that but it captured everybody's attention and and for some reason you know just those films come along every so often well game of thrones as well it's like it's re- you know it's not like family friendly true of medieval fantasy either in the way that lord of the rings is right it's like mm. yes explicit like sexual violence and torture <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's like good point some, it's some of the stuff in game of thrones is more horrific than most horror right and mm-hmm. yet like you say it had that amazing broad appeal too so i think often people underestimate adult movies and adult tv shows as well like they do make money it's interesting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and people were like at the water cooler talking about alfie allen's penis getting cut off like you know what i mean (laughs) it was it was a very odd time in terms of just like what we were consuming and i i really was a big fan of that show up until the end so what's interesting is right now there's a lot of people like actors and creators and stuff who are talking about kind of like taking sex out of popular like movies and shows and stuff really and it's almost like it's kind of moved from movies to shows. Mm-hmm, so it's not mm-hmm. as much in like blockbuster movies and stuff or like movies that you go see in the theater, but it is on in like prestige dramas. and. Yeah, this is something I, I talked about recently on my podcast, actually. We, we covered some of the erotic thrillers from the early mm. 90s, movies like Basic Instinct and, and that kind of thing, Fatal Attraction. And we talked about that, about how sex has kind of gone from mainstream cinema now. Yes. You don't get many mainstream blockbuster movies with A-list film stars like Glenn Close or Sharon Stone or Michael mm-hmm. Douglas having explicit sex, right? Um, but you do have that in HBO television. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's moved true. over to prestige television. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's an interesting thing that I found with you kind of going back through with the series that you're doing now on Home Invasion the part about kind of erotic thrillers was a bit of a throwback to me because it's like right there was this time where all of these movies were about kind of like cd sorted sex stuff at their center 
Yeah. And then, you know, someone gets killed because of it, right? And and you're right, that does feel very of its time. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I think people miss those movies, though, right? I, like, I found <laughs> yeah, that when covering good. them on my podcast, particularly from female audiences, actually, yeah. and women, but, like, people have a real fondness and nostalgia for those movies because they were interesting. They, they had interesting roles for women. They had interesting storylines. And they gave you kind of stuff for adult audiences that we just, as adults, don't get anymore in mainstream cinema, you know? Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, Have you ever seen Body Heat? It's like an erotic thriller from the eighties, eighty one or something. It's really good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's some great films from that era. Yeah, it's got Kathleen Turner and William Hurt. Kathleen Turner. (laughs) Yeah, she was Mm. like she was so sexy. (laughs) But that's why she was Jessica Rabbit, right? Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But yeah, again, it's like people at the water cooler talking about Sharon Stone spreading her legs in the, <laughs> you know, in the police interview. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, you know, we digress. Um, I was <laughs> wanted to say, you know, for somebody who's into film a little more, you know, deeply, you might know this Spielberg guy kind of was able to make a decent career for himself following <laughs> Jaws, was he not? He did all right, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. he did all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, this is the thing. You... I feel like sometimes it kind of almost feels boring to talk about how Spielberg <laughs> is a very good filmmaker. Fair enough. But it, it's no, no, but I don't think it is. Like, I think that he's amazing. And I love talking about how good Spielberg is because I think sometimes, weirdly, weirdly, he kind of gets dismissed now as kind of like, uh, oh, you know, Spielberg, mm. he makes like schmaltzy, sentimental family films or whatever. Mm-hmm. And y- you, I think sometimes, weirdly, he goes underappreciated as this incredible director who is amazing at horror. He's amazing at tension, suspense. He, yeah. You know, he can, he, he can kind of do everything, right? And he's had a few misfires in his career, but... <laughs> He is incredible, and this movie proves what an incredible filmmaker he is, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, for me, I don't mind the schmaltz at all. I like a lot of, like, heart in a movie. Yeah. And that's why Absolutely. some of my favorite scenes in this are, like, I, I honestly love Matt Hooper and Chief Brody's relationship with yeah. each other. I love it. It's one of my favorite aspects of the whole movie. Yeah. And all that is, is that's the heart of it, is the relationships between the characters. And yeah, I don't have, I'll never complain about that ever. (laughs) No. I think that you find yourself charmed by it, Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I feel like everyone has, like different generations have their favorite Spielberg movie that they grew up with, Hmm. whether it's Jaws or Indiana Jones, or for me, it was Jurassic Park. Like that was one of my first ever movie theater experiences. And, you know, he... He is amazing. Like he's, it's, it's yeah. hard to compile a list of top five or even ten of the best movies he's made. Right? It's, he's amazing. And mm-hmm. he changed film while he was at it. Right. So oh, then it's, yeah. it's so hard to kind of tease out all the influences that a director like that has on every movie we see now. Period. Right. So that's yeah. a very good point you make for sure. And yeah. he, he kind of went to horror a couple times. Right. Like is, is Jewel one of his horror movies? Mm, yeah what a film and then also kind of for pharmacological reasons there's a lot of rumors that he basically directed poltergeist as well that yes. like toby hooper might have had you know not too much influence in that movie by the time it came out <laughs> i know it really poltergeist is fascinating because it really does feel like a mix of toby hooper sensibilities with steven ah. spielberg mm. sensibilities doesn't it and yeah it's definitely i would absolutely believe that spielberg 
kind of had most creative control over that film mm. for sure <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah no he's br- he's so good at horror i mean even jurassic park yeah. has some terrifying moments and he doesn't he doesn't talk down to a young audience either i mean that mm. movie is a family movie i guess yeah but there are kids being like crushed to death <laughs> under a car by a giant t-rex and there's a scene in the kitchen with the velociraptors kind of stalking mm-hmm. the kids yeah. which that could be something out of like the shining or something you know like he is <laughs> he does he he injects like pure horror into his blockbusters yeah absolutely like high tension moments and i'm wondering mike kind of we know that you would include jaws in the the kind of genre of horror so do you have other <laughs> reasons for that as well Oh my god! I mean, it's a <laughs> giant shark eating people. Right. I mean, it's a it's a monster movie, isn't it? Yeah. It, it yeah. belongs in the it belongs in the tradition with Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, mm-hmm. and you know any other big giant monsters attacking a town. You know, it is like it. It's. I think. I feel like Steven Spielberg deliberately made it as a, like a throwback to kind of fifties monster movies, really. Mm-hmm. And that, right. that is he's it's an incredibly well made. It's sort of an incredibly well made. B movie, right? <laughs> yes. Like mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and I'm not saying that as a kind of slight on the film. I think it's a masterpiece, but I think it in its at its DNA, it's this big monster attacking mm-hmm. a town, isn't You're it? Right. Basically, yeah. yeah. And and I think for some reason as well that it's hard to put my finger on. It stands apart from all other shark movies. Yes, because shark movies are just their own thing, and yeah. you have to be ready for a lot of camp, and they're kind of uh, silly and and kind of starting to cannibalize themselves where. <laughs> They're going bigger and bigger, right? But Jaws is just different. It gets a, a level of respect that other shark movies, you know, couldn't dream of, I think. I think that's right. And I think all of that comes down to there are practical reasons for this, right? As to why we don't really see the shark much. And instead mm-hmm. he uses yes. other really interesting cinematic tricks. He'll use his point of view camera. He'll mm-hmm. use the John Williams score. Uh, he will focus it more on characters, on these incredible characters in this film mm-hmm. and the human interactions and the shark is just kind of there in, in the background almost. And and I think that's what makes this film so good and so frightening. Whereas now you get movies like, I don't know, Sharknado or The Meg. <laughs> and they're, they're not doing the same thing that Jaws is doing. They're not interested in characters or in that's story right. or that's in right. anything else, you know. So, yeah, it's hard to make a good shark movie, I think, you know, especially after this. They're more interested in the scene where, like, Vin Diesel drives the car into the shark's nose or something like that. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Which, I mean, mean, it's just they've moved in a different direction, I would say, right? There's still plenty of shark movies being made, and they must be popular. Yeah. So, yeah, Mike, if you're okay, we'll just ask you some kind of general horror fan questions, if you're all right with that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, you know, if you don't mind letting our listeners know what your favorite horror movie is, I know I've heard you speak on this. I just can't remember if it was Halloween season of the witch or if it was one of the Hellraiser sequels. (laughs) Oh, Oh, my God. Um, Well, God, those blood, those Hellraiser sequels. Jesus. Um, So... No, it's neither of those. Um, my favorite horror movie. It's such a hard question, right? It's, of course. It's my my go to. I, I mean, I, like you said uh, earlier, like I have a handful of about three or four, and you know, for me, The Silence of the Lambs is is up there. Mm, wow. Wes Craven's Scream is up there. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is in there as well. But the one that I cite always as what I think is the best best horror movie ever made is the texas chainsaw massacre the the toby hooper yes um original i think that movie is it's just like pure (laughs) nightmare fuel from beginning to end basically like i don't think any other film has kind of just 
I don't know. It just it's just like terror from frame one until the very end. Really, um, I think it's incredible. Yeah, that's a that's a great point and and great example because there's something so gross and creepy about that movie. Yeah. Like right, like you say, right from the first frame. Mm-hmm. And again, something that's just so hard to put your finger on. Like I don't think Toby Hooper could make another movie like that. No, if he tried to, you know, like it mm. just happened to be the perfect kind of mix of so many things to make the product that it did. And even with all the remakes and stuff, it, nothing's really come close. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering as well, if you have a favorite, would you say you have a favorite horror director? Like Jenna and I don't think on that level too often in terms of who directed what. But if I had to think, I would say my favorite horror director might be Mike Flanagan. Yeah. Just because when I look at his mm. list of work, I'm like, I love almost all of these except for Bly Manor. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. so I was wondering, like, you know, do you have an opinion on who kind of is your top director in this genre? Um, yeah, it's a really hard question, actually, because there mm. are so many, aren't there? And there is, there is, um, there's a particular generation of filmmakers around the 70s and 80s. There's Toby Hooper... George Romero, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, like that that group, David Cronenberg. Those are the ones that I feel like so many kind of horror fans that I speak to, it's it's usually one of those that are everyone's favorite. It's usually John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And for me actually it's Wes Craven. I think mm-hmm. Wes Craven is the one that I I I kind of I love and have a real affection for. And it he's weird, he's a weird one because he didn't make like flawless films and he certainly didn't have like a flawless run of horror films but he tried his hand at so much different types of horror and his movies were really always really interesting they were always really about something you know Mm -hmm. whether he was you know he kind of he nailed that kind of 70s exploitation horror with Last House on the Left, which is a horrible film, but he mm-hmm. kind of made it for a, for a reason, really, because he was kind of repulsed by the kind of violence that he was seeing in Vietnam War footage and all of that kind of thing. And then, then he made Nightmare on Elm Street in the 80s, which was kind of the quintessential kind of generation-defining mm-hmm. 80s teen horror film. Yes. And then he made Scream 10 years later, which was kind of the 90s generation-defining horror mm-hmm. film as well. And I don't know, I feel like no one has done that more than him in, in terms of like this longevity of like consistently kind of refreshing the horror genre and bringing something new to it decade after decade. So I, I, I think he's probably my favourite. Although if I was to talk about directors working right now mm-hmm. um mike flanagan would also be up there for me and jordan peele as well oh, yeah. be, it would be between those two yeah it's amazing that jordan peele after like after get out his first horror movie every one afterwards became a must-see after just one movie like that's yeah. pretty cool you know what i like yeah. too is that he didn't necessarily leave the genre behind Oh, like to? leave leave comedy behind? Or leave because, horror behind. Yeah. So, so yeah, certainly true. he has a lot of comedic sensibility, there's no question. But Get Out was such a massive hit, he could have done literally anything he wanted to next. Yeah. And he followed it up with Us, which was maybe a more ambitious, even maybe scarier horror film too. I certainly prefer Get Out, but I really like mm-hmm. that he clearly has a certain kind of dedication and love of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited about that too, because he's also probably got a lot of funds behind him now and and things like that. He could kind of take on whatever he wants. And he actually has this thing, like going back to what we were saying about blockbusters, he has this thing where his name alone Mm -hmm. sells a movie, Mm -hmm. right? Like Nope, his film Nope, 
made lo- like way more money than anyone was expecting. It became one of the biggest grossing movies of last year. And I, I don't really know why, other than that it was the new Jordan Peele film. Right? Yeah. Like that, that's pretty incredible, I think, that he alone now can kind of sell movie tickets, you know? Yeah. Including the fact, I think the Nope trailers and things, that everything was super cryptic. It's like mm. people might not have even had a good sense of what kind of story they were going to see and all these things. And, and Nope is a bit of a wild movie. Yeah. But yeah, that's great. That That's really encouraging. So yeah, um, Mike, another question that we are going to be asking our guests and, and certainly we'll probably have a standalone episode about because it really interests us. Why do you think that we love horror movies? Like as a society. Yeah. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do horror fans keep coming back? Sometimes a horror movie can be such a slog, but in a good way. Mm. I remember you and I walking out of the theater when we saw Hereditary. Oh. And I was like, oh, I was drained. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I really like Hereditary. Like, why do you think we like these movies mm. despite sometimes them being a challenge to watch or, or being upsetting? I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? I think there's there is a kind of cathartic release right in watching a horror film in watching something really really like watching your worst nightmares lived out in a safe space i guess right like i think mm-hmm. that's i guess it's the same reason why people love to go on roller coasters mm-hmm. or bungee jump or yes. skydive like you get this thrill um you it's almost like you're kind of i don't know you're sort of well i don't know it's almost like when you do something like skydiving or bungee jumping or whatever it's like you're cheating death almost right it's not quite that strong with watching a horror film because you're not in any actual danger but i think there's something about living it out vicariously through characters you know watching these like most horrific things imaginable happening (laughs) to people whether it's a slasher killer or a haunted house or whatever demonic possession or whatever the fuck was going on in hereditary you know like (laughs) watching people go through that stuff and then coming out the other side of it and being safe I guess is that you get this kind of weird release, um, adrenaline release from it. Um, that's the best kind of answer I can come up with for that, really. And, uh, you know, but Hereditary is a weird one because you're right. Like that, that movie didn't give me a cathartic release. Like I walked out of that movie feeling really drained and exactly. kind of depressed, right? And like, and it is strange that that is something that we choose to put ourselves through as audiences, right? It's so interesting. Well, and then leaving with that feeling and being like, that was such a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what a weird yeah. thing. But I feel like Absolutely. if I do suggest that movie to someone, I do it with a caveat being like, it it's really heavy. Like, you know, it's a great movie. It's awesome. But you got to watch it in the right frame of mind and have a little yeah. bit of time to recover. Like we talk about watching it for the podcast all the time. And I feel like we're kind of putting it off because we're like, oh, yeah, like we know we're going to have to watch it at some point, but I yeah. don't know when. Yeah, I've still never gone back to Hereditary a second mm. wow. time. Like I've only seen it once because it really shook me. Mm-hmm. So it was just it was just there's just so much grief in that film. Like I don't think mm-hmm. I was expecting it to be such heavy film about grief. Um, yes. And it's not one that I can easily just like pop on for fun. you know? <laughs> no. Yeah, at Christmas time. Yeah. So I think like one final question before we get into the uh, the movie. Mm. So for John and I, because it's kind of our bread and butter, it's what we do for a living. We feel like when we're watching horror movies, we can't help notice mental health topics come up. It's just all the sure. time. Um, and then for you, as someone without a background in mental health, do you feel like you run up against those topics very much when you're watching? Is it something that you notice? I, yeah, I guess so. Like, I am definitely somebody who, um, 
I'm definitely somebody that gets quite a lot of anxiety, I guess. And mm. like, right. I think, again, going back to your previous question, there's something about watching kind of anything that you're like i guess i guess in my head i'm a catastrophizer like i will i'm <laughs> yeah. not i wouldn't say i'm scared of flying for example but the thought of crashing and dying will go through my head at least once every time i'm on a plane right mm. and like i'm like that with most scenarios i will usually think about the most horrific thing imaginable that's going to happen to me when i do this and it will usually pop into my brain and i think there's something about seeing those things happen in a horror film that is sort of oddly comforting right mm. as well so and, and i think so i think from that perspective in the way that it it, it links to kind of my own kind of personal fears and anxieties mm. i think there's something kind of satisfying about horror but then in just in in, in general I, I think it it absolutely does always kind of delve into a kind of uh mental health or a kind of psychological kind of subtext in in almost any horror film right i think mm -hmm. it has to because in order to in order to be a successful horror movie it has to kind of hit us subconsciously right there has to be yeah. something that hits us on an emotional and visceral level um and yeah i think whether it's you know the silence of the lambs which is kind of literally kind of exploring the mind of serial killers and how they work or jaws in a way kind of explores our own fear and relationship with the sea and animals <laughs> yeah. and yeah. sharks and why that's such a phobia right as well and i think any horror movie you can think of really any any decent one will explore something to do with us and our inner workings right in what we're afraid of in what we're anxious about in what scares us in what repulses us you know so yeah mm -hmm. i think that there's a there's a really strong connection there for sure mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was, um, you know, when you were when you were talking about kind of why we watch horror movies and stuff too, I, I really agree with what you were saying. And I think as a person who, you know, can sometimes be anxious myself and things like that, I almost look at watching horror movies as a way to kind of flex our anxiety muscles <laughs> in almost yeah. like a, in almost like a training kind of way where, like yeah. you said, we're in a perfectly safe environment. We know at the end of the day, the movie will end, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, something that so many people kind of, get mixed up with is that anxiety is something that we all have mm. and it's something that's really healthy and it's important that we have it right our lives would be a disaster if we never worried about anything yeah. and so i think you know if we're not careful we might kind of insulate ourselves where we're never in a situation where we feel anxious and then it gets that much more scary if that feeling ever comes up so horror movies kind of give us a, a very safe and enjoyable way to intentionally kind of provoke our own anxiety. So I, I kind of uh, agree about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and we don't know, like, you know, when Jenna and I were kind of conceiving this podcast and creating this podcast, I worried almost that our niche of mental health would be a little too small. Mm. But as we're watching these films, it, it surprises us every time. We don't have to go digging for these themes. They, they just present themselves naturally. Yeah. We don't know if that's because we're hammers and everything looks like a nail. <laughs> or if it's because, you know, like you said, all the best horror movies have these themes kind of woven in. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's something in all of the, all of the great horror movies out there right for sure are you guys going to explore any david lynch movies because i oh, feel like God. that's a rich rich area to discuss in that mm -hmm. regard as well absolutely for sure and it's like we've got so many movies that we know like oh my gosh like maybe we're gonna need to release two episodes on this fucking movie because <laughs> we know it's so deep with these things 
But in terms of like David Lynch, I have seen nothing but like clips of Eraserhead. Oh, really? And that's enough for me to be like, I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> everything I see is like gross and yucky. And I don't, <laughs> I'm afraid to even watch the whole thing because even the little bits and like still images and what I've read, I'm like, that's enough. I'm already creeped out. <laughs> Yeah, his movies scare me possibly more than any other director. Yeah. And, you know, the the, the images, he uh. runs, he works as on pure subconscious almost, you know, uh-huh. like his movies right. are always like kind of come from his dreams and, and, and you know, from transcendental med- meditation and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so there is something that's just like weirdly, you just feel like you're all like looking in on his psyche, you know, it's very creepy. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, we'll probably end up watching it at some we'll point. We'll do some Cronenberg <laughs> stuff, some, you know, mm-hmm. David and fly. Brandon Cronenberg, because Brandon Cronenberg has some very mind-bending type things. We really liked Possessor. Possessor was awesome. Mm, yeah, it was great. I saw Infinity Pool recently and quite liked it too. It was weird. Very weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you ready to kind of talk yeah. Jaws? Yeah, we will jump in and talk Jaws. So I have kind of, we both kind of thought of some scenes that we for sure wanted to make sure we didn't miss. Um, But for me, it starts right in the beginning with the opening scene. So I kind of look at it as a classic kind of all-timer in terms of opening scenes, kind of like, you know, Drew Barrymore and Scream or something like that, that just Mm kind of sets the tone and establishes the threat really early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like for... Again, for anyone that argued this isn't a horror film, this mm. opening scene—it's like a slasher movie opening scene, mm-hmm. right? You got yes. these like these these two teenagers fooling around, yeah. and they go off to go and have some fun, and then they get killed by this monster. Like it is a classic kind of horror opening scene. Promiscuous teens and oh yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that. They kind of punish for having sex as they often are. <laughs> Yeah, and this was pre pre slashers, really. This was pre Halloween, but they, they, Spielberg did it first. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, and so you know they established kind of a nice scene with the party and that sort of thing, and they just bypassed the flirting part because flirting's kind of probably pretty hard yeah. to write. I think. Yeah, she she looks at him, <laughs> yeah. and then they <laughs> and then they run away off by themselves. <laughs> and then, okay, would you ever go swimming in a big body of water at night? Well, this is going to get down to people and what they think of the ocean, because I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't go swimming in in a lake, probably, like <laughs> at, well, you know, not if it was like pitch black, certainly not, because you just don't know. Would you, Mike? No, I grew up on the coast. I grew up mm. by the seaside and I hate the sea. <laughs> <laughs> I I will, uh, everything, everything in the sea freaks me out, whether it's like... <laughs> jellyfish you know it just like i just feel like we shouldn't go there it's not meant for us fair you know? enough like, no, um, it's meant for sharks I, yeah and i think sharks are amazing creatures just i just think that we shouldn't be mixing with them is all you know yeah well what if there what if you were 18 and single and you were drunk and there was a very beautiful woman who stripped herself naked and ran to the sea yeah I know, I know. I can see I can see how that could happen. Absolutely. But I think in my right sober mind, I would not I would not be venturing into the sea. No. I was wondering and I don't know if this was my copy like I rented this uh to watch it. Were there some kind of day for night shots because yes. like when they showed yeah. when they showed the man, um it was like clearly dusk and and quite dark, but when she was going into the water, kind of looked like It's daytime. glittering. Well, you know yeah, I mean? like the sea is glittering they did shoot day for night yeah 
Okay. And then uh, did you catch the part where he's like, he's doing all his kind of drunken mumbling, mm-hmm. which was kind of funny, but he's like, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then she takes her shirt off and he's like, I'm definitely coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a first for me. I didn't pick up on that one. My first kind of couple of watches. And then when she goes in into the water and when she actually, like when it gets her. Yes. So can you can you imagine what the shark would have to be doing to achieve? Because she's like kind of <laughs> going keep her above the water along the surface. <laughs> I did think I about know. that. <laughs> and like it's like initially it feels like it's not actually hurting her or chomping down on her. It's just kind of like wiggling her about, right? <laughs> it's like yeah, hang on. <laughs> yeah, I did think about that. And like over to the buoy, and then yeah. like yeah, I mean, for He's cinematic just fooling reasons. around with her. For dramatic but that, that's like how you know how people um, sometimes like. Uh, might criticize demon movies and stuff for being like, why is it that the demon just kind of bugs you and messes with you at first <laughs> yeah, and then yes. kills you? That's what the shark was doing. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah, for narrative reasons. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And we get our first POV shot of the shark. So I'm not sure, like, that probably wasn't a brand new technique, but I know it was also one of the things they did to avoid kind of showing their animatronic shark mm. more than they needed to. Yeah. Was that kind of a staple of horror already at that time, Mike? Mm, it was it was yeah like we mm. I, I would say that one of the most famous early examples is peeping tom in 1960 <laughs> which was a, a movie about a serial killer really really controversial at the time people absolutely hated right. it partly because it made audiences so uncomfortable that it put you in the point of view of a serial killer so we right. have those shots where we're literally kind of walking you know walking around with the killer as he preys on his victims he picks up sex workers he kills them and we're kind of like you know almost like you feel culpable almost you know being sort of that aligned with the the monster or the killer so yeah it had been done before this um the kind of early example of the kind of proto slasher movies too like black christmas in 1974 has a lot of those pov shots as the killer is kind of stalking his victims and things so it had been used um for sure but i wonder again whether jaws is the movie you know all those movies i just mentioned are a little bit more niche of course like they mm. i think that maybe the maybe jaws it's fair to say probably made that much more mainstream i think and again you know spielberg has talked about this a lot in interviews about how he kind of had to make do with this because he didn't have a realistic looking shark right so <laughs> all of these things kind of happened uh, were kind of happenstance really because mm. He had to find other ways to kind of portray the shark. So he replaced the shark, you know, with his camera and with that that score, you know, to kind Mm -hmm. of uh, signify that the shark was there. Yeah, amazing. And I I think that he does that to great effect because something like seeing a floating barrel pulling around Mm -hmm. and seeing Mm. the dock get pulled away and all these things that they represent the shark, but you don't see the shark. They're just so effectively used where Mm -hmm. it's really foreboding to see this group of barrels coming towards the boat. You don't have to see the shark, which is such a good idea. Mm -hmm. So smart, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. And I was thinking the POV shot where it's coming up underneath Chrissy, right where she she's kind of treading water and stuff that is tapping directly into so many people's worst nightmare so when you talk <laughs> about fear of the sea i think that one of the things that we're kind of hesitant or scared of when it comes to the sea is just not knowing what's in there mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. being able to see what might be right beneath us but it can see us and things like and that like, something's touching my leg <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and like where we yeah. go swimming which is in lakes, lakes. it's funny because we still have the same reaction of <laughs> yeah like what is that what's touching my leg and it's like you know 
that it's one of two things. It's a water weed, which is fine. Or it's a fish that's not it's like too small to eat you or even yeah. bite you. So it's like, even though you know those things, you're still like, no, like get off me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, I think there, yeah, like you said, there's something big and dark and unknown about it. It, it shares similar tropes with space in mm. cinema, mm-hmm. right? Again, like, you know, these kind of like alien movies set in deep space. There's, they're not a million miles away from movies set in the ocean in a way, you know, it's the similar kind not of scare. You're kind yeah. of just as far away from help in a lot of ways. Like yeah. if, if you were like in the deep ocean kind of thing, not so much here where you're near a beach, but like <laughs> right. in a lot yeah. of ways, they're not that dissimilar because you're just as helpless and hopeless of a situation. And I look at mm-hmm. them in the same way too, that if one thing goes wrong, mm-hmm. like you're dead. If you're in deep sea or mm-hmm. you're in deep space, I mean, there's so uh, those are two very terrifying concepts to me too. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, so that was just that's just one of the scenes that I think it sets the tone for the movie mm-hmm. in a really cool way, but it's also kind of lives on as a very famous scene, and that's the first mm-hmm. time we get the introduction to the POV shot. It's the first time we get the introduction to that one piece of the score that they use for the shark attacks. And so like, it's kind of, it's just such a great way to start the movie off. And I, I agree. It's like, sets it in my opinion, very strongly right into the horror genre, mm-hmm. you know, to begin with. And then after the initial scene being quite horrific, I feel like it takes kind of like a hard turn into just kind of, you know, pleasant small town in introductory stuff where it's definitely not so scary. And that's the, some of the establishing stuff. I love just like, Brody bustling around town from like the police station and then to the beach and getting the stuff from the store to make the signs to close the beach mm. and and all that like all the charming little like side characters like I love that yeah me too it's like world building isn't it it's, it's yeah. really important mm-hmm. I think that so, the, the thing that so many people forget with horror films is that you need to kind of care mm-hmm. about the people that you're you, you know you're going to f- be scared for right and I think Spielberg is this is such a perfect example of like he gives us the location, he sets up the space, he sets up the characters, he gives us an insight into what's going on in this place mm-hmm. uh, before he then fucks it all up with this giant shark, you know? And it's like, yeah. it's great, it's great. <laughs> and he very firmly establishes why the town doesn't want to close the beaches. <laughs> I feel like mm. that point really gets <laughs> hammered Those home. Those parts were so awesome too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it's like, that's one of the funny things about horror too, is so often they start so nice. It's like, <laughs> oh, look at this nice family. They're moving into this house and they got it at a steal. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, this is amazing, right? And then yeah. they've got this nice little dog. And then, you know, <laughs> half an hour later, you're saying goodbye to the dog. But yeah, um, that's true. Like, it's like so much of it, you have to establish something sometimes that's like, look how idyllic things are. And then you just kind of smash it all up, like Mike just said. Yeah. Mm. One of my favorite scenes that I really wanted to talk about too was kind of the second shark attack, which is the little boy in the water where mm. everybody's on the beach and and Chief Brody still hasn't had any success in kind of saying like we need to keep people off the beach and all this stuff. Yeah, he got he got overruled and but then he's like keeping a very close eye on the water yes. and he's he's tense and he's not able to relax and and it's interesting too because like so obviously this this town has an influx of people in the summer, like mm-hmm. tourists and stuff like that. But at this point, it's it's supposed to be before that's happening. So everyone on the beach is a local, pretty well, much. They, they talk about that so much. So uh, you're an islander, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, the concept of being an islander is mm-hmm. so important in this movie, which I found so interesting. So I think this is another scene 
that helps to center us right in the horror genre. There are kids in the water. There's one particular kid on a floating pad, right? Mm. And you know what? You see his arms and legs dangling in mm-hmm. another POV scene. And apparently I've heard that's one of the things that can really trick a shark. Into thinking you're a turtle. Into thinking you're a turtle. <laughs> so I've heard too. Right? Yeah. So it's wow. like the, the image of this big block with these dangling <laughs> arms and legs. Yeah. Do you know what I find super sad about this whole thing? Is that they introduce you to Alex too by having him come out and talk to his mom. And ask, and, ask for more time in the water. to go back in. Brutal. Uh, yeah, if you were the mom, that's all you'd be thinking about. Like, he was on the beach, he was okay, Aww. and then he went back in. It's, uh, again, like, Spielberg, you know, as somebody that has <laughs> yeah. the reputation of being, like, a wholesome director, <laughs> you you see a child get brutally murdered on screen, mm-hmm. right, in yes. front of his mom in this scene. Like, <laughs> it is a brutal, horrific scene. It's so good. It's so well directed, <laughs> isn't it? This, like, the build-up, the the constant, there's a couple of fake-outs where you <laughs> yes. hear a scream and, yes, you know, yes. Brody's really tense. He's looking around and there are people coming up to him and talking to him and he's kind of looking past yes. them. And you get this kind of slow build of dread before that inevitable kill eventually happens and all these all these local yokels are like (laughs) taking up all his time saying well i've got this going on at my house and like (laughs) oh you know and he he's thinking about this shark and i agree this scene is brutal there's like a torrent of blood Mm. somehow kind of shooting up out of the water (laughs) yeah right it's amazing like a fountain and do you know how how you were just saying about the dog getting it like i think we're to assume that pippin died that Pippin, Pippin, Yeah, because he Pippin, doesn't come Pippin. back. So I think he doesn't that, give yeah. the dog one second to make itself, like, <laughs> yeah. he was like, he was not taking a breath to stop saying Pippin. So I guess the dog did get it. <laughs> I, yeah. I think the dog's been eaten too. Yeah, yeah. And there's that famous, you know, not to get really film studies mm. nerdy. Please. But th- there's that famous shot, that reaction shot of Brody, of course, the yeah. dolly zoom, right? Which is, again, like it had been done before. I think uh, Hitchcock was one of the first people to do it with Vertigo. Whenever Jimmy Stewart mm. is kind of looking down off the buildings, you get that weird sensation where the camera is moving towards the actor, but it's zooming out at the same time. And right. it, it looks like the background is kind of moving behind an actor, yes. right? Um, and it it, you know, again, like it had been used before this, but this was, again, one of the most mainstream examples that kind of set the template where you feel like you get this in countless movies now, right? When somebody experiences something horrific and it's like they're almost having an out-of-body experience, mm-hmm. you get that camera effect that kind of warps the background. It's so good. Yeah, and I feel like it does get that point across of like having, as you say, like an out-of-body experience or something surreal. I feel like just that visual that visual of that interesting zoom gets that point across so quickly, so efficiently. That's pretty cool. It's amazing cinematic shorthand. And that's something that I'll be speaking about a little later too, is that just that zoom and the way that it kind of disorients you almost as the audience, like it gets across so much about what Chief Brody's going through without, you know, him having to make some exclamation or or anything like that. So I agree, a really nice effect. Yeah. Yeah. Just Mm. the look. Do you know what else I love is that, as soon as he sees what's happening, he goes like, get out of the water, get out of the water. But every parent runs into the water and they're all dragging their kids that out. That schmaltzy Spielberg guy. And it, but it's just yeah. so true. That's, of course, exactly what of you course. would do. Yeah, of you course. would run in and grab grab your kids. I might run, oh. in, I might run in and grab my dog. I don't know. <laughs> well, Pip, no, Pippin's been eaten. We've established that. But And then poor like Mrs. Kittner is just like oh looking God. all around. That's so sad. So sad. <laughs> Quite awful. 
brutal. But then that those are the stakes, right? And like you said, Mike, it's not a situation where he says, oh, look over here. The shark went right by that kid. It's like, yeah, the shark did go right by that kid, and then he ate him, and he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then he ate that yeah. kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not, it's not pulling the punches in that way. Absolutely brutal. Right? Yeah. So, so good. So it fully went there, and I think that, again, just really cements it for me. Like, yeah, it's a horror movie. I, I can easily say that. That being said, I think part of the reason that people might not always recognize that is that a lot of the horror stuff kind of comes in the beginning and then it, mm-hmm. it kind of does transition to like adventure tone. Yeah. Oh, there's certainly still does. horrific things, but the the kind of horror set pieces are really kind of more so in the first half. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say it's like it's the first hour is a horror movie, right? The yeah. second hour is this kind of like mm. swashbuckling adventure on this boat. It's like this Moby Dick story or something, isn't it? It yeah. is swashbuckling. Yeah. Which is complete hook, line, and sinker for Jenna because one of her favorite things is like when people who are from different places are kind of forced into a team and have to work together. So that's kind of one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's two of my favorites because what? it's forced into a team situation and trapped in a place. Because there you go. They're, they're stuck on the boat. Stuck on a boat. Perfect. I lo- love <laughs> yeah. the dynamic between them. But one of my favorites is Matt Hooper's arrival at the uh, harbor and kind of like all the ensuing chaos around there. I just think, again, it's like so quick to yeah. establish like their relationships, who he is, like the dynamic between him and Brody. And I just love it. Him showing up and very quickly kind of getting a cool reception from the Islanders because he's you know, not an Islander and like also maybe a bit of like a rich kid, whatever, and uh, trying to tell them what to do when they don't like it. But I, yeah, and I just like love the the chaos of everyone trying to get out on the water to try to kill this shark. And they're all getting out in these teeny tiny little like two person boats. Like I can't imagine what they would hope to accomplish. <laughs> yeah. Like what are you going to do? And uh, so, yeah, like Matt Hooper arrives and he goes and he's looking for Chief Brody. He finds Chief Brody and automatically right from the very first second, they're like on the same team and just working together from the first moment that they meet. And there's something about that that I love. Like, I love their dynamic. I think they're super charming together. It also does establish like the stakes for why they might want to hire Quint because otherwise it's chaos. Like the alternative is this, is everyone on the island trying to go out and kill this shark. So like it it kind of sets that up well. It is. It's such a good scene. I think again, like the, the movie takes its time to set up so many great characters. Even the mm-hmm. peripheral characters in this are mm-hmm. great, aren't they? You know, and uh, like I do love movies like this, these kind of like monster attacking a town. Uh, you know, like the, Steven's, um, Stephen King is very good at this kind of thing too. Like yes. this, this kind of like build this world of this like small American town and all of its weird residents inside it with yeah. this monster kind of, you know, and, uh, you know, I think, yeah, <laughs> uh, again, like these are the stories that are some of the most successful horror stories for sure. And yeah, very similar setting actually, because he does all, he's from New England and he does like. Didn't see too many kids on bikes. No, no kids no. on bikes. <laughs> They were too busy in the water. Kids on boats instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One yeah. thing Jenna was mentioning to me today, I guess they used a lot of actual local people <laughs> to be in the scenes. And I think sometimes it shows like some of the crowd shots they're making. There's certain people making like ridiculous facial expressions <laughs> that absolutely don't fit the tone. But it also, I think, adds to the like, yeah, this is a bit of a strange place and it's got lots of people. And, you know, some of them are kind of, a little odd themselves, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's just colorful. <laughs> yeah. And, and one thing that's come up too, and you know, I 
one thing that sticks with me even is that one line that we were talking about mm-hmm. where um, Hooper's trying to say, you know, this isn't the right shark, blah, blah, blah. And the, the one guy says, what kind of a shark is it? And he says, that's a tiger shark. And he goes, oh, what? Yeah, that's such a weird moment. Yeah. And it's like, why? <laughs> like, well, did you have no more film? Like, why like, couldn't no. you reshoot that one scene? But it just sticks with me. They're like, we don't need another take. That was perfect. And then they go, they're back to the harbor and then they've caught this tiger shark and yeah, a little bit more like local color and very funny. <laughs> and like, yeah, when he says he's kind of taking measurements of its mouth and stuff and saying like, no, this can't be the shark. And then that same guy who had such a strange, like, oh, what? He goes like, oh, I'll shove your head in there. Like, this is a man eater. Like, look how big it is. Yeah, exactly. But I, I agree. Just the weird delivery of that line adds so much color. And so I was saying, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like, uh, but you didn't, did you? No, you just moved the headstones from <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Poltergeist. And then we just watched The Wicker Man. And so, you know, the, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus Christ. And it's like, they stick with me so much because of the way that the person chose to deliver that line. Yeah. And the director said, hey, let's keep it. Yeah, you say that to me all the time. I do. <laughs> um, Mike, do you have a favorite? Now that we're introduced to Quint and Brody and Hooper, it's Matt Hooper? Yeah. Do you have a favorite kind of character that's at the center mm. of this film? They're all kind of it's charming really, in their own way. I know. I was thinking about this earlier. Like, it's actually really hard to pick a favorite out of those three, <laughs> isn't it? Like, I, I think they work so well as mm-hmm. a group as well. Like, they all bring their own little unique sort of quirks mm-hmm. with them. But I guess Quint is <laughs> maybe the most out-and-out entertaining just on his own out of, of, course. of them. But yeah, but I love them all. But yeah, you're right. It's like the interplay between them that is so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. It's bigger than the sum of its parts in terms of, you know, the relationships and things like that. That's true. Although Quint, I will say, he's the reason that I had to put closed captioning on. I don't know if it was just me, but <laughs> I was struggling a couple times to pick up on what he was saying. Um, but yeah, like I was a big fan of, of Hooper. I don't know. Yeah, me too. I just found him really charming. I and I, him. I did like the way, like you said, he just jumps right in. He starts trying to boss the people on the <laughs> boat around and he kind of establishes himself so well. Do you know what else I like about him is that he's very like physically affectionate with Brody. Lots <laughs> like, of lots of he, slaps on the back and, and things like, like that. He touches him a lot. And there, I don't know, there's something about that that I really like. Maybe it's like because he's not like toxically masculine or anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. yeah, exactly. But I like it. He like when he he brings him aside to go talk to him. He like touches his belly to go talk to him and stuff. And I don't know. I just think it's cute. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm gonna think about that now when I watch it, and I'll be picking up. Well, on watch those how things. much he touches him. It's, it's a fair amount for people who just met. Interesting, because Quint is more so uh, a representation of maybe some toxic masculinity. I think you could see. Yeah, I think that that's probably fair. I think he yeah. like he he like dresses down Brody's wife for no reason basically being like what's a lady doing here like what blah 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 blah, blah. like he, he had a lot of weird things to say that guy mm-hmm. I know one scene too because uh you were um kind of intrigued by the dinner scene too right when yes when Hooper I, drops I, in I, on lo- I love the dinner scene because it's another it's just charming because he's like he shows up like socially so weird to, to just show up uninvited expect to be fed <laughs> like you bring these this wine and whatever and i and i love ellen as well like the the wife in it like i just yeah, i think that she's, she's great she's so sweet to just be like accommodating what this weird stranger is doing in her house she's like oh sure let me grab some wine glasses let me talk to you about sharks and then they like 
you know, do a really good job kind of like establishing where Hooper's coming from and where Brody's coming from that like Hooper loves the ocean, loves sharks. That's his whole thing. Yeah, that's a good point. And Brody is like distinctly afraid of the water, afraid of the ocean. And so it kind of gives you an idea of like where Brody's coming from and like just how big of an act it is for him to be out on the boat for the entire latter half of the movie, being out on the boat and like trying to bring this shark down, like just how much that must have taken out of him. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. then going so. going and ripping the, the shark's belly open. And- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I know. And, and then I think, is that when he gets him out on the boat and they, they yes. find the, the ruined yes. boat too? Yep. And like that's... That is, um, you know, speaking of like horror moments that kind of define this as a horror movie, that's a jump scare for sure. And a good one and quite a scary one. Yeah. But I agree. Super effective, amazing horror moment where he's in the super black water. He drops his flashlight, all that stuff. Do you know what else I thought was interesting about that on rewatch is that he's diving without a tank there. He's just swimming. Oh, okay. And that is something... I would not swim under a boat at mm-mm, night without mm-mm. a tank on. Without knowing where the oxygen is going to be. Yeah, like what if you yeah. got lost among the boat and its riggings? Just re- respect the sea. Respect the water, I think is what. Yeah, I don't know why <laughs> he to decided think. to go down there in the first place. I mean, he yeah. of all people <laughs> knew what was lurking down there, right? Like, what's he doing? But that is like, like you say, that's another classic, iconic these yes. kind of iconic horror moments in this mm-hmm. film, right? And that is an iconic jump scare for sure that famously, like, people absolutely screamed and leapt out of their seats <laughs> in theatres back in the day, apparently. You know, like, mm-hmm. again, oh, people awesome. were just not expecting that. Uh, it's it's so good. It still makes me jump, that moment. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, again, I think you're right. That's, like, an, another all-time scene. And it's just a short little scene, yeah. you know? But, like, Brody had to get drunk, as you say, to even get on the boat. Yeah. So he brings the wine with them, and he's on Dramamine all the time. They talk about yeah. that, <laughs> to go on the boats. And, um, yeah, I agree. Like, once Hooper finds this tooth, you know, he. Yeah. if it were me, I would have been like, hey, got the evidence I need, you know what I mean? And, yeah, uh, yeah the, the, the dead body scare is just, like, so effective because it did get me, too, mm-hmm. for sure. Because I think one of the things that we've realized about jump scares as we've kind of been talking about film a little more critically is that it's all about diverting the audience's attention. Mm-hmm. So about like focusing mm. on something like a, like a tooth mm-hmm. that he's grabbing at. So you're all focused on that and then boom, something else is coming. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a lot about that on my podcast as well about, you know, what, what separates a good jump scare from a bad one or a cheap one, you know, cause there are yes. so many jump scares out there and ones that people accuse of being yeah cheap or, um, what's the word kind of manipulative I guess and then mm-hmm. other ones that people consider you know the great well-earned jump scares and mm-hmm. yeah I think it's often to do with the build-up and like what it is and 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 you know what comes before it and how it's set up and um but yeah I think this is a, a brilliant one you know like it's so good because you kind of you're half expecting something to happen and maybe for him yep. to see the shark at that point I don't mm-hmm. think you're expecting to see this terrifying dead head a pop mm-hmm. out of that hole <laughs> exactly and where do you fall Mike, like, are you pretty liberal with jump scares? Like, you're happy to have them? Or are you yeah. kind of more critical of jump scares? I don't understand necessarily why people consider it to be cheating, but I wonder what uh, you think. Yeah, there are times when I get a- I get actively kind of, like, slightly annoyed when I know that that film is going to make me jump continuously because it's just like, oh, okay. if anything, it just, like, hurts my, like, chest. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, you know, when I go watch a movie by, you know, filmmakers like James Wan, and he's excellent at jump yes. scares, but... 
God, he loves jump scares, you know. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, you know, I don't know if my heart can take this for ninety solid minutes. Uh, but <laughs> I do love it. I'm, I am, I am absolutely pro jump scare for sure. You think about okay, establishing rules, what's cheating and what's not. Like even one of the all time ones I can think of from like American Werewolf in London, right, is the like double dream sequence yeah, yeah, where yeah. he wakes up from two dreams and it's it's so effective but you know you could say well it's kind of kind of manipulative to have that happen because the audience already thinks okay i'm woken up from this dream but to me they're usually welcome as long as it's not that's all the film's got mm. you know what i mean like mm, as exactly. long as there's it, it can be scary without them then i'm more than happy to have you know some good jump scares in them too Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. It's the the it, the periods in between the jump scares need to also be good and scary, yeah, right? Like much. I think it can't right. just be like la 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 boo la 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 mm-hmm. la la boo. You know, like that's when I think it feels annoying and and unearned. You know, like I think you yeah. need that feeling of dread and anticipation um, in order for those jump scares to feel worthy. I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I think too, if there's too much manipulation of the volume level too oh, that kind yeah. of drives you because like you're just literally preying on my central nervous system and the way it yeah. works right it's like mm. you know you're just using this loud noise to kind of crash in i i would say maybe that i i would get annoyed by too mm-hmm. i suppose but again that's also what i like about horror movies in the same way and i've said this to more than one person but I'm never going to get so excited by an action movie <laughs> that I like climb out of my seat or pump or <laughs> right. pump my fist or stomp on the ground or anything. But a horror movie, it's like the characters are scared. I'm scared and I am on the edge of my seat and I'm absolutely terrified. So mm-hmm. there is like it's it's much more immersive when I know I'm I'm waiting for something scary. Right. Yeah. Like I'll cover my eyes sometimes. Like there's certain Big things time, I like yeah. candy and yeah, no other like, genre is going to elicit me like moving in response to it the same way that a horror movie does it just like i don't know it gets you it's more of an experience than I agree. others it's more immersive mm-hmm. yeah i agree although of course i laugh at comedies and you know <laughs> might cry at a drama or something but it's just more intense do you cry much in movies not often i do yeah yeah do you? I'm a big crier how about you mike yeah i i am actually and i've gotten worse as i've gotten older actually mm-hmm. but i I love it like i think again there's this there's this weird i don't know there's this weird view sometimes i think that people look down on films that give us emotional visceral reactions right like comedy that makes us laugh and yeah. horror that makes us jump like these are considered kind of somehow lower than mm. right um and yeah maybe movies that are too overly sentimental that make you cry as well are also you know then i don't know there's something about movies that yeah make you feel rather than make you think that like mm. people somehow right. are slightly more snooty about it's weird but i don't know why that's that would interesting be, you know i think that's what i want when i go watch a movie i want to feel something you know yeah, yeah. right right yeah this is a great point um and yeah maybe that is part of the kind of stigma of some of these movies because you're right a comedy movie is never going to fare well at the oscars that just won't happen mm. right it may be mm. maybe a long time ago but certainly not now right mm. it's all some kind of prestige drama type thing you know yeah um, so i want to talk about the scene too where they're kind of in quint's boathouse and they're getting ready because i really love what a horrible place to be <laughs> yeah it looks it's, just awful in it there. seemed like it was pretty tricky for poor hooper there I just love this scene. Like, they get so much across about Quint, and they're like, yeah, clearly kind of pushing the character. Like, you know, well, take it a little further. Maybe Quint's like <laughs> this, right? Um, I loved all the content with Oh, yeah, Quint. like, they get across the kind of guy that he is. Like, he's, like, swigging huge shots whatever time of, of day it booze. is. Yeah. 
And yeah, that like Brody just like dumps out and he's immediately very confrontational with like Hooper right away, having him tie a knot. Yeah. Yeah. Prove to me your, your sea legs. Yeah. Meanwhile, Brody doesn't know how to do anything. And is is admittedly terrified of being on a boat. Well, but I guess that makes sense though, that he'd be more confrontational with the guy who does know. Cause he even said before he was like, I don't want anyone to come with me is what he said earlier. And he said, there's too many captains on this island. <laughs> and you know what? I think that that's interesting because, of course, there would be on an island, right? Everyone's used to captaining their own boat, I guess. And everybody caught a, a fish that was this big, <laughs> but it got away from them. <laughs> yeah. I just really love it. He's behaving super erratically. Um, you know, he's pretty rude, crass, that sort of thing. He's constantly singing these songs, too. Like, that was kind of that was kind of yeah. charming, actually. Yeah. But he, like, takes... Hooper's hands after making him tie this knot, which <laughs> Hooper very adeptly does. And he, he tells him, oh, you got city hands for counting money. <laughs> yeah. I, there's, there's, I mean, when the movie kind of moves to the second half with these three on the boat, it, it kind of does feel like we're in a different film almost, mm. doesn't it? And yes. it's so great. And I think, again, like, had it not been quite so well written and so well performed, it easily could have felt a bit slow and boring mm. at this section of the film, right? But it really doesn't. And I think, again, there were these kind of infamous stories about how long this movie took to produce. There were all kinds of issues. The sh- the shark wasn't, you know, working, mm-hmm. the fake shark. And they had to sit around these three for days at a time, <laughs> these three actors together on this boat. And they they all started to go a bit stir crazy. And oh. I, think, I think that actually adds to like this vibe that you get with these mm-hmm. three characters on this boat, you know, like it's, it's actually there in the actors. And so much so that there's even a play. I don't know if it's made it over to where you guys are, but there was a po- successful play in, the, in London here called The Shark is Broken. And it's literally a play about the three actors filming the boat stuff and they're just on set waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's about how much these three actors kind of bickered and, and got on each other's nerves in oh, the process wow. of filming Jaws. That's and, cool. I would um, love that. It's, yeah, it's really good. And I know that it, it went over to the to the States, I think, like, but if you ever get a chance to see it, it's it's really, it's a really, really fun um, little, like, companion piece to the film, really. And awesome. actually, one of the actors in it and let me try and see if I can remember, but I think it's Robert Shaw's actual son mm. plays Robert no Shaw way. in the wow. play as well. And he's identical to him, so it's really <laughs> weird. So it's like looking at the real Robert Shaw in this show. But anyway, yeah, like I think all of that kind of like the context to it, you know, and how long and how many days these three actors spent shooting on this boat, I think really adds to that feeling that you get when you're watching the second half of the film, you know, mm-hmm. of these three men going a bit stir crazy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think you're right because that very much comes across on their boat ride. Mm. But one of the things that um, I just love about it is there's such a push and pull between Quint and Hooper. Mm-hmm. And even like I would say what they establish about Quint is so many things, but that he seems to kind of hate the modern world too because mm. he's super critical of Hooper for all these gadgets he's got. Right. He says that like people these days don't know anything and he he makes all these kind of comments about you know things not being as good as they used to be and very much scoffs at all the things that Hooper knows because he's got some kind of advanced knowledge in this area that Quint just doesn't recognize or respect. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's almost like Hooper knows so much about sharks in a scientific way and then kind of quint has this weird like animalistic connection to them you know what i mean that he kind of knows them in an intimate way where he kind of knows 
their soul or lack thereof because the way he describes sharks is very kind of dismissive. But mm. there's such a uh, push and pull there, and Brody's right in the center of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I really love that scene because they, they kind of really set things up. And then I think that there's a catharsis when you get to the point where they're drunk, they're on the boat, they've been bickering and yelling at each other all day, and then they start to kind of um, show their scars to each other, and they kind of start to do a little bonding there, mm-hmm. you know, and even Hooper kind of has some scars to show that Quint kind of keeps one-upping him on, mm-hmm. you know, but they're clearly kind of have a more kind of jovial attitude at that point, would you say? Yeah, and like especially Hooper and Quint because they're both sitting together. Yeah. And they're like, again, like touching each other. Like he's like <laughs> grabbing his leg and like taking a look <laughs> at his scar and whatever. And like you might be able to confirm this, Mike. I'm not sure. But mm. I, I think that this was a scene that was added in later because they – had like they needed to fill more time and like this exchanging of stories oh really yeah that that sounds right i think yeah absolutely uh I, you know and it, again like it, all these uh, that's the thing about jaws right is that you feel mm-hmm. like so much of it with these kind of like happy accidents yes. that created this yes. perfect movie you know yeah yeah i completely agree that's a, a, that was a phrase that was in my head earlier is happy accidents because it it, it adds like texture to the movie that now it's like you can't imagine that scene not being in it but mm. no it made it for me their yeah. whole relationship that scene if it wasn't there I would have uh, just felt a lot more cold about everybody's relationship mm. for sure and it's it's interesting the kind of discussion of the USS Indianapolis because that was a real thing well yeah and I, I did want to talk about Quint's monologue mm-hmm so they're swapping war stories in the sense yes. of they have they have scars. Scars, yeah. Brody then points to one on, on Quint and says, well, what about that one? Yes, because it's not one that Quint volunteered. And uh, so then Quint tells the story about, and it, yeah, it was, like, I don't know if it's embellished much for the movie, but more or less a true story that this, like, U.S. naval ship, like, sunk and all the... Um, people on it were stuck in the ocean for a really long time waiting for rescue and some of them like described by Quint being like picked off like systematically by sharks and so that kind of paints the picture of why he might kind of live the way he does where it seems like yeah killing sharks is his thing it's his whole thing and business is good yes my business is killing (laughs) sharks and business is good yeah so I just think that that's uh it's like such a scary, scary story. And like, that's a scary part of the movie. And all it is, is an exchanging of stories, but it's such a horrible thought to be just floating in the ocean. There's nowhere more vulnerable you can be. Yeah. And so does his monologue kind of stick out for you as it did us, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's it's kind of brave filmmaking, I think, isn't it? To just kind of like stop everything and just let these actors monologue, you know, at this point Mm -hmm. in the movie, in the runtime. And it is... Oh, the performance is so good, right? And it's such a visceral story. Mm. It's such a and and uh, you know in that in that writing and in that performance, he absolutely kind of places you in that world in that story. And yeah, I I love it. It works so well, doesn't it? Almost to the point where you forget. Oh, we're in the middle of this shark movie, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. and then all the shark action, you know, that follows is like, oh yeah, you know, you, you snap back into that world almost, you know. Yeah, and like that's a good way to put it. That like at this point in the movie, like. We're, we're on this boat to catch a shark and here we are here we are swapping stories I think that like in a less like in a lesser movie you would be like oh why the heck did they choose to do that why did they decide yeah. to just stop and tell stories um, but John 
when we had been talking about this earlier, he said, like, to me, why don't you discuss PTSD in the context of Quint? So I was I was wondering, sorry, Jenna, I was wondering if when you see a scene like this in a movie, if they're using that kind of anytime you're using kind of a combat flashback of any kind, if they're trying to use it as kind of a shorthand for PTSD or, or just a, a really troubled person who hasn't gotten over whatever trauma came from, you know, their combat situation. But I was wondering, is that the feeling you get from this scene or, or not so much? I guess, yeah. I guess it is like, I think that they're trying to get across that Quint is troubled and like, maybe this is why. Like, you've probably noticed that Quint is a really unpleasant guy (laughs) to be around. Maybe this is why and gives us a little bit of backstory. But what I thought was really interesting was that when I actually like looked more closely Mm -hmm. at kind of the diagnostic criteria and stuff, I don't think that he has PTSD at all. No, because no. he's still living his life. Yeah, because there's there's some criteria that like he does meet, obviously. So for PTSD, there needs to be a stressor. Obviously, he's got that. Like he had that completely horrible experience in the water waiting to be eaten by a shark. Um, but then he really doesn't meet many of the others because there's um, different sections of like uh, intrusion symptoms. So ideas of like nightmares or flashbacks, flashbacks yeah. which I feel like in a modern movie, if they were trying to get a point, get across that someone had PTSD, they would 100% show flashbacks or nightmares. Yeah, that would feel really familiar for them to do that. Yeah, and that doesn't mm. seem to be something going on for him. Um, also avoidance, so avoiding... Mm like feelings or flashback or sorry feelings or um like real real world interactions with the event and obviously we see he does the opposite he's he's made it his whole life to be around sharks that's what i was thinking his traumatic experience or i'm saying traumatic who knows if it was his experience with the sharks almost led him to have an obsession with killing them it's Mm -hmm. almost like he's trying to kind of settle the score (laughs) in a way like that was my kind of feeling about it that's why he like boils shark jaws for a living or that kind of thing. And that's why he's so connected to this mission of killing this shark. Like it's personal for Quint. Mm -hmm. It's not about the, the money because Mm -hmm. he he's desperate to kill that shark. And it's almost like he can kind of right the wrong that happened when he and all his crew of men were, were there in the water waiting. But yeah. So like discussing the fact that there was a trauma for this guy, I think that Mm -hmm. like, Maybe if the movie was made now, they would make more of an effort to to kind of like relate it to maybe a, the topic of PTSD. But yeah. at the time, it probably wasn't also very much in people's heads because actually like the term PTSD and the diagnosis didn't exist until 1980. So until five years after this anyway, even though the kind of concept sure. was like at least aware of since like the First World War. But yeah, like. I, I actually don't think that he meets the criteria. Some of the only symptoms that he does have, he's irritable. Certainly. <laughs> and uh, and he engages in risk-taking behavior. He definitely does that. Big time. Um, and you're right. In, in At the time of World War II, the, the diagnosis would have been called CSR, Combat Stress Reaction. Uh, whereas in 1975, when the movie was made, it would have been called Transient Situational Disturbances. But I was wondering some things like, do you think... And, and maybe I'll ask you this, Mike. Do you think that Quint is, they represent him as having kind of a, a passive suicidality? That mm. that he's, he's not that he has a death wish per se, but that he certainly, I, I almost felt like they were trying to get across, this guy doesn't care if he dies, that would, yeah. that would be totally fine with him. Yeah, I think that's right. It kind of feels, he feels like a man with nothing left to lose, nothing left to prove, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Doesn't care what anyone else thinks about him, doesn't care how he treats anyone else. 
and he sort of doesn't care if he lives or dies. You're right. There's a mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, there is a sort of, I don't know, a kind of apathy or something. I don't know. But yeah, like, absolutely. I got that too. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that made me really think that was that he said after that day, he's never wearing a life jacket again. Mm. Right. And it's like the life jacket didn't hurt him. The The sharks were hurting people, but he's better thinking, hey, man, it's better to just like if mm-hmm. I'm in a situation where I'm stuck in the water and I can't get out, then better that I just die. And I thought that was really interesting. Do you know what I think drives the point home that he doesn't care if he lives or dies is when he smashes the radio that or when he, Brody's he, trying to use? Or when he pushes the engine past the point of fixing? Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and so when he smashes the hell out of the radio. Such a um, good scene. And, and then Brody says, you're certifiable, you're certifiable. Yes, he does. And um, I mean, like, not, it's not a real clinical term, but 100% people still use that on my unit. To mean basically, yeah, your mental health has deteriorated so much that you can't make decisions for yourself and, and you need someone to do that for you. Even physicians that I work with will use that term to really? say, yeah, um, but like, again, it's not... I mean, it's not technically correct, I guess, because what we're using is a form and the Mental Health Act. Um, But they might say like, oh, because of X, Y, Z, I believe this patient is certifiable. They might use it kind of like colloquially to kind of get a point across. And so I don't don't necessarily know if Brody's right, (laughs) if (laughs) if Quint would actually be put on a form. Oh, good question. Definitely got some risky behaviors for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Wonder what his sex life is like. I don't know. <laughs> that's Probably somewhere risky. That, the reason I ask, Mike, that's somewhere we might. <laughs> that's some risk taking. That's somewhere behavior. we might see a lot of risk taking behavior yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah Not because yeah. I care to know. You're like on another note. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mike. What do you think Quint's sex life is? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably, probably like something to do with sharks. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's yeah, a bit of shark play. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> shark fantasy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So those are the scenes that I wanted to talk about, but I thought we might as well talk about kind of the climax and, and things like that, mm-hmm. too, because it's pretty, pretty impactful. But, um, you know, what did you think oh. as well about uh, did you have any others you want to? Talk well, you about? know what? I would talk about what I just talked to you about when I showed up at your house um, oh. about the like footage that was caught of the actual shark kind of like rolling around on top of the cage. Right. Um, when Hooper was in it, because so in the book, Hooper dies. He, yes. I think he gets eaten. And does he do the cage dive in the book? He, he does. I believe he does. I just a long time ago that I read that's it. That's okay. And I think that that's when he dies. And so that was initially they were going to have him die. Jeez. But then when, um, when they were actually shooting B-roll for the movie and they actually caught this amazing footage of the shark that got like more or less like stuck Tangled on, the, up on, the, line on the top of the, of the cage. And so he's thrashing around on the top of the cage. But in that footage, the cage is empty. And right. so what they had to do then was figure out a reason for it to be empty. And so then they had Hooper escape. Nice. And like, that's like the reason that he survives in the movie, which I think is great. I love, I Thank love goodness. that. Yeah. So that otherwise it would have been just Brody at the end. So alone just like on you the were ocean. saying, Mike, kind of another happy accident that mm-hmm. led to what I feel was a good decision at a cinematic level. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, do you know what I find so scary? So when Quint is eaten... <laughs> He gets like dragged into the water and at least to me, it didn't look like that was a dummy. It looked like that was a real person in the jaws of this animatronic shark being pulled underwater. Can you imagine just being pulled underwater? Like, yeah, just feels like a big risk to like for something to go wrong, you know? 
it is. I think there is something that's like added kind of uh, spectacle to that scene because of yeah. that. Like, because you're thinking right. about like, God, what happened here? And were uh, like, how much danger was that actor in at that point? That's what I think. <laughs> I think like, how long did he have to be able to hold his breath for? Like, how 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 effective are the jaws on this shark? Can they like just be let go? Are you they know? trustworthy? Because you hear about behind the scenes stuff like that all the time. Like even in Titanic, like uh, Kate Winslet almost drowned, like filming a scene because she got like stuck underwater. Like it's only too quick that something like that can happen. So that's something I thought about. And there have been some situations in kind of horror movies like that too, eh, Mike, where mm-hmm. they're trying to set up a certain shot and maybe someone has to spend a ton of time in the water. Like I'm thinking of one of the Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. Friday the 13th ones maybe where someone got hypothermia mm-hmm. because they were trying to set up this shot in the water. I can't recall if I'm right about that, but. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, like that is sadly a bit of a, um, a you know, mm-hmm. a trait of kind of 70s <laughs> filmmaking mm-hmm. and 80s, you know, like, they didn't much care for their actors or their action. There wasn't a whole lot of care, I suppose, mm-hmm. like in terms of people and what they were put through in horror films, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, also sometimes you can't deny how good the results are as well. Yeah, <laughs> or like The Exorcist yeah. too. Did that I happen know. to Chris? She it, hurt her back? She did hurt her back. And yeah, she like, gets yanked into the wall. And, and like you say, when you say you can't deny the results, like that becomes something like knowing the background of something but really enjoying the product can feel a little bit like yucky because you're like "Ooh, i know or like even in the birds because apparently like um hitchcock was like horrible to tippy hedron the whole time and they like and they were really throwing live birds at her (laughs) and she was like traumatized but it's like but it's such a good movie it's kind of like what you end up with yeah, so then, you know, basically from there, like those those are definitely my favorite scenes that we've covered, but it, it culminates in, you know, Quint has already broken the boat completely. Yep. Um, he then goes and gets himself eaten and the back of the <laughs> boat is hanging off, right? And it's sinking and then we get Brody go up to the crow's nest, right? Which is now like two feet off the water. Two feet, exactly. Isn't it horrible to watch how quickly it's sinking? Yeah. Like, I can't I even imagine. I did think about that. That was wild. Oh. And like, you can't see land. It's like, I know I assume they were making their way back in, so I know mm-hmm. they're not too far, but I can't imagine that. It would be so horrifying. Say, I'd be completely terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mike, kind of any thoughts on the final scene where we've got the shark with the... Um, compressed air in its mouth <laughs> and barreling towards Brody who has to then shoot it. It's so good, isn't it? I mean, again, like, yeah. considering that the shark doesn't look great, you know, like, the fake shark doesn't look great, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't matter. I think, like, the filmmaking is so good. The mm-hmm. way this action sequence is kind of shot and edited, the performances, the music, everything there works just so perfectly. It's like heart in your mouth you know kind of sequence isn't it it's so so good it's still every time i watch it 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 just works you know the action the tension you know everything about it like you really feel every moment of what those characters are going through you know absolutely and when you talk about it being like a really really good b movie i think that that's 100 (laughs) percent true with like the climax of the movie is that the shark blows up like that like that sounds silly (laughs) No, literally, like, he blows them sky high and there's yeah. chunks of shark going everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I agree. It's like, a, it's a B-movie, but really Done to well perfection. made. Yeah. yeah, really well made. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I just, I hadn't seen it in a little while, but it's it's a very nice mixture for me of the horror elements, which I, of course, love. And it's just charming and it's a great story and really well executed, too. 
right? I, I think I watch it like every year. Yeah, well, I'm probably not too far yeah. from, you know, I, I'm probably watching them with you when you watch them every <laughs> year. So maybe I watch it every year, but I still forget stuff about it, you know? So coming back to it, like the, even like the mayor and the role that he plays, oh, you know what I mean? Like yes. he's such a great character too. That's and it's like, well, as say. you remember, Amity means friendship. And Amity blah, 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 means blah. friendship. You know what I was going to say about how we talked about how it captured kind of the public consciousness and became so big yes. is that I love that the mayor is in Jaws is such a cultural touchstone. I think yes. that's so funny. <laughs> Really? I don't know if you guys had yeah. this, but in the UK during COVID, it was just like our prime minister, Boris Johnson, uh-huh. who was basically the mayor in, in Jaws, <laughs> yeah. uh, this kind of like clown type personality who kind of refused to admit that anything was going on in the world. Um, that meme was just circulating almost on a uh-huh. daily basis, you know, of that That's mayor. great. I don't think Boris Johnson wears a ton of seersucker suits, though, does <laughs> With he? With the lankers on it? <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> but do you know what? I've heard it referenced in two movies, too. They do it in the new Ghostbusters. There's a part where Chris and Wiggs like, don't be like the mayor from Jaws. Yeah. And there's also, this, this one was so funny. I was just watching a movie the other night. Uh, it's called To Catch a Killer, and it's on Netflix. Mm. But it's like the one, the mayor in the movie is basically making bad choices and someone's like, don't you remember the mayor from Jaws? He was like, well, the important thing is that the mayor from Jaws was still the mayor in Jaws too. That's what you should remember. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, God, that's insane, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I guess it's because they wanted him to stay. He was like, he was fun. <laughs> well, it's almost like if I ever became mayor, I would want to find myself somewhere between Footloose mayor and Jaws mayor. How's that? Because Jaws mayor was all about like, we can't stop people having fun. Yeah, somewhere don't between no fun die. And so much fun that people die. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think somewhere that, like, between them. They'd be good barometers for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so I want to ask you too, Mike, I have my own perception. And you, like I said, you know, we're coming from a Canadian and Ontario, Canada kind of reference. We have a certain experience of kind of talking to the boomer generation, our parents' mm. generation about Jaws and the impact of Jaws. So I'm wondering, kind of, is that mm. something you've spoken to about people, you know, of that generation? And, and what was their, kind of, what did they tell you about it? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's generally just like, kind of like what we said at the beginning, that it was this kind of word of mouth sensation of like, oh my God, are you not going to believe how scary it is? Mm. And, you know, I think I think it became that movie, a little bit like Barbie, Barbie and Oppenheimer, this <laughs> yeah. year, right? that kind of like everyone had to go and see an experience. And my parents definitely said that, you know, there were people kind of screaming in the cinema at those jumpy <laughs> right. moments and that kind of thing, you know? So yeah, I mean, it... This film meant a lot to a, a, a huge generation of, of movie fans, didn't it, I think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and almost unfortunately for sharks, it's like one thing that I'm used to hearing from people of that mm. generation is people who are saying, you know, I wasn't getting in the water after watching that movie. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's kind of, I think that that's a big part of the legacy of Jaws is kind of the way that it has gotten into the public consciousness about the sea and, mm. and kind of... Um, it really has a lasting impact on people's willingness to be around water or, or kind of to even think about that sort of thing, you know? So do you think like, do you think it's possible that even movies like this have played into kind of your own fear of the sea? Like it, are, do they kind of make that worse for you? Yeah, they probably didn't help. That's for sure. <laughs> like, right, I, yeah, I can completely see how this is the film responsible for <laughs> most of humanity's fear of, of sharks and the sea, right? It's so, it's so interesting that, and yeah, like, 
I think it's that's valid, isn't it? Because it's like mm-hmm. it is a movie that so many people have seen. It's such a touchstone. Everyone knows Jaws, right? Everyone, mm-hmm. no matter if you're a movie fan or a horror fan or what, like everyone knows Jaws and knows what happens and knows that there's this killer shark. And I think it is absolutely, it's like, it's probably one of the most culturally important movies ever made, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, great example. And, um, you know, I think... You know, when we're hearing about people's kind of feelings about the water, their fear about the water and, and that sort of thing, like that has me thinking about Jaws really quickly as well, because it's kind of playing out of the worst case scenario of people's fear of the water, you know, and you might have a lot of people who say something like, "We, I, I, I have a phobia of the water. I have a phobia of sharks and that sort of thing. And usually they're using it as kind of almost like a nickname, like the same way we say, you know, oh, I'm I'm feeling so depressed that this show's canceled or, or something like that. Or like, oh, like I that, have OCD. Right? I like things neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OCD is a tricky one. People really underestimate just how debilitating OCD is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so they're willing to say, oh, you know, oh, I, it really triggers my OCD when all the all the pencils are this way and then one is kind of sticking out so i need to fix that like that's not ocd mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and in the same way with with phobias or something like that that the fear when we're talking about a phobia the fear is so intense that a person would like struggle to look at a picture of a shark you know what i mean so there's there's a big separation there between you know feeling generally anxious about kind of things like that and about having like a true phobia a true phobia of sharks or the water and one thing about phobias is it's so intense and it's kind of an island unto itself that i'm not nervous about other things quite as much but if if a shark comes up or the idea of a shark comes up then i'm really triggered and get a big physiological response from that and and the the fear is so intense that it kind of it's it can be really debilitating right Mm. but we can see like we saw earlier when it comes to anxieties and fears about these things they also serve a purpose like if i'm swimming in the ocean and there was a shark sighting there (laughs) moments ago it is in my best interest to get out of the water Mm. right yeah but what we do is we kind of do a little too much generalizing where you like you said about the planes mike like we're much more likely to be harmed in a car accident than a plane but it doesn't feel like that right because no. humans don't belong in the sky so that's end of discussion <laughs> so that's right? wrong. yeah that's exactly what it is isn't it i think it's 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 what does and doesn't feel natural to us as human beings and and being in the sky <laughs> being in the middle of the ocean you know whatever yeah. right? like these are the situations where everything in our body it feels like is telling us this is wrong right? <laughs> right and you know it's it's and whether or not the probability is much more likely that you're going to die elsewhere you know it doesn't really matter it's still there's something in you innate isn't there i think that tells us like this is not good for us as humans you know mm-hmm. That's 100% correct. I agree. And and that's the thing about anxiety. So, of course, we all have anxiety and, and it's an important tool for our bodies to use to keep us safe. What separates it from an anxiety disorder or from a phobia is is it's meant to be kind of irrational, quote unquote. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That the fear you're having is way out of proportion compared to the actual risk that's involved. But like you said, Mike, tell your body that it doesn't necessarily matter in the moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've I, I, I've got like a really, really, really weird phobia of bees. Like I hate bees. Uh, I, I'm not scared of most other things like spiders. I'm fine right. with that kind of thing. But bees for some reason. And like, I don't know why. Like, and people often ask, people find that weird. Like they go, oh, wait, like, have you been stung by a bee? It's not that painful. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's not, 
it's not a rational fear, but that's what a <laughs> yeah. phobia is, right? Yes. Like I don't I don't know why I'm afraid of them, but I am. Like, you know, and it's uh it, yeah, it's just one of those weird ways in which your body reacts to something, isn't it? Yeah. So do you have anything you do to avoid bees? That's a hard one. <laughs> no, just like just <laughs> free do like a weird little like dance if they're around <laughs> me, you know, and get them away from me. <laughs> and is that ever something that you think like you'd like to like have you ever considered trying to address that fear of bees or is that just something that doesn't even interest you in the in the least no and i guess like it it's not it's not something that's super debilitating i mean right. i'm not, i'm i'm slightly exaggerating it it's no, no, yeah, I hear if, you. if there is one around me i'm 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 basically fine i just don't like being in really <laughs> close proximity to one i wouldn't want one like on yeah. me i suppose right? i think that's fair <laughs> and like we say all the time it's about function so you don't need yeah. treatment for something that you're functioning well yeah, because yeah. I also I've never been stung by a bee, so mm. I think that it's the not knowing that I'm pr- I'm pretty afraid because I'm like I don't know what it's like. But you know what? Yeah. Your kids talk about it all the time. Like reassure, like I think that they're reassured that I've made it into adulthood without being stung <laughs> because they feel like protected. Like, well, Auntie's never been stung by a bee, so I'm probably gonna one be day okay. I can be just like her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you're right, Mike. It's like. You know, if you couldn't go to the store that you saw a bee at last week, <laughs> right. that's a huge exactly. problem, right? And and exactly. honestly, there are people who struggle with anxiety enough that they can get to that level, right? <laughs> mm. So yeah. you can see they're not living their life the way they'd like to. You you know, being uncomfortable in the presence of a bee, I think, yeah, you know, that's manageable, right? Hopefully yeah, it doesn't happen exactly. to you all too many times. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Exactly. So yeah, it's it's all to the extent, isn't it, of like all thresholds. how this affects you day to day. Yeah. Absolutely. And now, that's what we talk about all the time. In terms of phobias, can you guess what the number one phobia that I see on the unit is? Needles. Is uh, that the one you were thinking nope. of? Nope. Agoraphobia. Ah. So leaving the house? Yeah. Oh, agoraphobia. That's really interesting because I would have guessed the opposite. I would have guessed claustrophobia. That's interesting. Arachnophobia too? really big one mm-hmm. but there's a specific really common one phobias are very strange mike there there's like <laughs> six categories mm. and it's like there's animals there's like the things that are really broad like being in a small space and then there's needles and it's like there's a specific category of people mm. who are phobic of needles or blood Ugh. and that is just a huge one and so it's one that like i wouldn't use in as, as an example when i'm speaking to somebody because it's a really common fear so it could yeah. kind of set them on Oof. edge right well i tell you thank god i have not run up against a lot of people that's what i thought you meant because you were on the hospital setting because we give needles all the time there's a lot of medications yeah. that need to be and a lot of psych medications that are administered by needles. fair enough but no it's like often um agoraphobia in kind of conjunction with like anxiety and depression and psychotic disorders mm, okay mm, agoraphobia. and i was gonna say i wonder mm-hmm. do you think there's been an increase in agoraphobia since covid since lockdown like i because mm. I, I do get the feeling that people are more i don't know again maybe i'm using this this word a bit too casually but they are more anxious and they mm. do experience more anxiety in just going out and interacting with people than they used to pre-2020 at least from my experience here in the UK you know what I think that's a really interesting question and I got that question a lot especially Mm. like during the beginnings of COVID and and like kind of since things have opened up I got that question a lot but I gotta say it didn't really change my experience on the unit Mm. and the reason that I think is because like 
those people who are having more issues with anxiety, going out of their house, talking to people, it's still not at a level that needs hospitalization. So I think like, yeah, I think the very mentally ill, it didn't really change enough to notice. The people who require hospitalization didn't change enough for me to see much of a blip or to notice. But I think anecdotally, yeah, in the average person's mental health, exactly in the typically functioning person's world, um, in terms of anxiety, I think it did peak people's anxiety. Number one, if you had any kind of um, hypochondriacal kind of thinking, you couldn't do anything without hearing about COVID. And people wanted (laughs) to tell you what the numbers today were, what the and like it was inescapable. I think you mean our mom wanted to tell us what the numbers every day were. She did. Yeah. Yeah. She and I think it it almost was a way for her to feel like she had some control over something. Mm -hmm. So it was a manifestation of some nervous thinking on her part. But for people who don't want to have any kind of irregularity in the way they're feeling or their health, that makes them catastrophize. COVID was inescapable. And and even Ooh. myself, once things loosened up, I, I was in the dentist's chair. And like, I don't love the dentist, but I don't care too much either way. But I was noticing I was anxious. And I was like, that really surprised me. It's almost like my base level of anxiety came up. Mm. And so it found little cracks to go out of. You know mm. what I mean? That like, yeah, I don't really get too nervous about the dentist. But that particular time, I was more nervous than I expected to be. Um and so I think that, like we're going to be seeing the mental health impacts of COVID probably for a long time. Yeah. You know what I think we're going to see a lot of is the kids who were quite young and um, isolated and isolated. And, like, mm, I know point. that's something people talk about kind of anecdotally is like COVID babies who yeah. for like the first three years of their lives didn't see anyone but their immediate family. Weird, eh? Which is so different yeah. for, from most other babies and kids, right? Who are in daycare and whatever. And I guess we might not know for like another 10, yeah. 20 years, really, right? What that effect is going to be. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sure it'll be well studied. I'm sure it'll be well studied, but it'll be, it will be such an interesting thing to see kind of like un, unfold. One thing we definitely saw, though, was there was an increase in youth accessing the hospital uh, for mental health reasons during COVID. Mm. So there's mm. a bit of a chicken in the egg there was where was it because the parents were home with them and they were able to more easily observe I think my kid's struggling right now. I'm going to bring them to the hospital. Or was it, you know, um, caused by the difficulties of living through the pandemic, you Mm -hmm. know? But yeah, I just think it's, JAWS is a really interesting opportunity to speak about fears and phobias and anxiety because most of us can live our life without much risk of a shark attack, right? Yep. But if there was a person (laughs) whose job was to be a boat captain, and all of a sudden they're so scared to be out on the water, then it's a lot more detrimental, right? I can have a phobia of, of sharks and, it, you know, never have it negatively impact my life at all because mm-hmm. the closest thing I live beside is a lake, so. Yeah, hardly you know. any sharks in there. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, Mike, any final thoughts on this movie, on its legacy? Oh man, no, <laughs> I think we've covered everything. Just that it's 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 it holds up really well, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It's like what, 50 years old now, uh, <laughs> yeah. nearly and yeah. like it Amazing. still looks. I'm just struck every time I watch it by how it, ba- it basically hasn't aged a day it feels like you know mm-hmm. and and it's probably i mean i think maybe for personal reasons my favorite spielberg is still jurassic park but i think mm. this is probably objectively his best film like it's a masterpiece isn't it it is it is and i agree yeah. and and from everything from the the story to the directing to the characters to the score 
it all kind of came together to make, you know, a, a really excellent movie. So I, I agree. I love coming back to it for sure. Yeah. And one thing that we've talked about with movies before is like the kind of behind the scenes action, the behind the scenes like lore that you can get to know if you're really interested in movies. And like I've watched like an entire documentary on this movie and like you you've watched and there's been developed a play about about this movie and the fact that that can still like engage people and bring people in is like just kind of speaks to how huge it is and how good and meaningful it still is a lesser movie i would never watch a documentary about you know absolutely and i think there are other films like that wasn't that there's a documentary about the the shining too and people's theories Mm, on oh yeah like people's theories on what the movie means right which is amazing (laughs) so you're right you have to reach quite high heights to kind of have all this lore around your movie and then there be content made about your movie you know years and years after clearly here we are yes 50 years later yeah here we are um and so mike you know we'd like to thank you so much for joining us uh, and to all our listeners, you know, we just, we really appreciate Mike being here and we're a big fan of his podcast as well. So thank you very Aww. much, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you for having me. Yes. And thank you to all our listeners as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, please reach out the fear response podcast at gmail.com, the fear response podcast on Instagram. Yeah. Please get in touch. We would love to any reviews, any Absolutely. like contact with us emails or anything we would love that and yeah we look forward to bringing you our next episode yeah Yeah. so thanks very much everybody